Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Caitlin McCoy interviews Sarah Light, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at Wharton, about how regulatory programs can be split among federal agencies, state agencies, and even private actors, and how that fragmentation can insulate programs from future deregulatory actions. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, this is Caitlin McCoy, the Climate, Clean Air, and Energy Fellow at the Environmental and Energy Law Program. Today, I am joined by Professor Sarah Light, who is an Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us by phone today, Professor Light. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about your article, Regulatory Horcruxes, which has been published in the Duke Law Journal. As our listeners may have already realized, you use a reference to the Harry Potter book series to describe the administrative law concept that you present in your article. We wanted to talk to you about this article because you use environmental regulatory programs to discuss your concept of the regulatory horcrux. And this is all extremely relevant to our work following the Trump administration's deregulatory agenda in our regulatory rollback tracker, as well as our other publications. So let's begin, and I will ask you to please explain the concept of a regulatory horcrux. Great. I'm so delighted to be here. So before explaining what a regulatory horcrux is, um, I would like to explain what a horcrux is to the extent that um, any of the listeners have not read the Harry Potter books. Great. So um, the the idea of a horcrux is a concept in the Harry Potter books where the chief villain, Lord Voldemort, wished to achieve immortality. And in order to achieve immortality, he essentially um, split portions of his soul and placed the portions of his soul into multiple external objects, everything from a diary to a necklace to a diadem to a ring. And the goal was to essentially protect himself from attack. The theory goes that if one's body is attacked or destroyed, one still can't die because part of the soul remains undamaged. So this is consistent, honestly, with the idea that decentralization or fragmentation can be protective against attack. Um, And so the concept of a regulatory horcrux essentially Um, asks whether it's ever possible to harden or insulate a regulatory program from deregulatory actions or deregulatory attack, if that's how you'd like to frame it. Um, And if so, how is it possible? And second, would it ever be a good thing? So a regulatory horcrux can be created when a regulator or the kind of coalition that creates the regulation intentionally fragments regulatory authority into multiple regulators uh, beyond the kind of primary federal agency that might be responsible for regulating in an area. Great. Well, thank you for providing that background. I It slipped my mind as a uh, diehard Harry Potter fan to give people some background. But thank you for for laying that out. And I think before we go any further, I want to pause here to discuss the importance of these regulatory structures. 
when we're talking about hardening a program for the sake of making a successor exit perhaps more challenging or protecting a program i think later in the in the article you pointed out that the importance should be on ending the program at the right time not necessarily providing a protective purpose solely to maintain the status quo for the sake of just maintaining the status quo and so you lay out the importance of these regulatory structures in the sense that the focus should be on is the goal of the regulatory program being achieved, right? And in structuring it in such a way that the program is protected enough to run its course, but also that there's enough flexibility so that it can be disbanded in the future when the time is right. So I wanted to make sure we sort of highlighted that early on in our discussion. And I also want to make sure I got that right. Yes. So um, I think maybe it would be useful to take a step back for a moment to explain what motivated me to write this article in the first place. Oh, that would be great. Yes. So this article, in many ways, was a kind of response to an article by um, J.B. Rule and Jim Salzman called Regulatory Exit, in which they argue um, that regulators often think about how to create a program, what the program should look like, who should be governed by the program, but they don't spend enough time thinking at the outset about how and when a regulatory program ought to end. That is somewhat atypical, right? One thinks about if you're a you know military leader, you wouldn't enter into an armed conflict without some sense of what your goals are and what your exit strategy might be. So their admonition was that regulators need to think more consciously about regulatory exit. And they propose a series of ways that regulators ought to take the thought about exit into account more fully when a regulatory program is designed. When I read this piece, I thought to myself, great point, that's very interesting, yet there's one problem. And the one problem is that there are background rules and laws that exist that allow a successor administration to exit a program regardless of how carefully the initiating regulator designed the program or wanted to think about exit. So, for example, Congress can repeal or amend a statute under Article One, Section 7 of the Constitution, or an agency can repeal or amend a regulation pursuant to the notice and comment procedures of the Administrative Procedure Act. There are certain types of regulations, timing-wise, that can be uh, revoked under the Congressional Review Act. So there are these background rules that say a successor administration can exit. And so the concern, of course, I mean, in one sense, that's a good thing, right? We live in a democracy, and our elected leaders should be able to amend the law as long as they do so consistent with appropriate procedures that we have put into place in our governing laws. On the other hand, there is a concern um, that exit will take place prematurely. And this is the point that you are getting at in your question, before the goals of a regulatory program have been achieved or accomplished. And so that was what kind of prompted my question of, is it ever a good thing to try to harden a regulatory program against successor exit or some kind of deregulation? Um, Acknowledging that in some cases it is a good thing and in other cases it might not be a good thing. 
And this kind of yielded the concept of decentralized uh, authority over a regulatory program and the concept of regulatory horcruxes. So that's, that was kind of the motivation. The idea of the regulatory horcrux um, is that there are really three sets of institutions into which regulatory authority can be fragmented. So the assuming that when we are thinking about this, we're talking about environmental regulation, um, which is certainly an area in which there has been a deregulatory press in the current administration, as well as it is my area of expertise. <laughs> so <laughs> that is why I wrote about it. Um, the primary regulator at the federal level is generally the EPA. So let's think about what other institutions could house portions of or all of regulatory programs. And there are really three sets. There are other federal agencies that um, have a primary mission that is not about environmental protection. For example, the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Defense or the Housing and Urban Development. The second set of institutions um, are states and local governments, so sub-federal governmental agencies. And then the third set of institutions would be private actors. And so um, these three different sets of institutions yield different types of regulatory horcruxes, horizontal if it's another federal agency, vertical if it's the states or local governments, and private if the institutions are private actors, each of which has advantages and disadvantages and may be better or worse at resisting deregulatory pressure from the center, but also better and worse at achieving the goals of the regulatory program. You beat me to my next question, which was going to be to ask you to explain the three types. But um, I also want to say that with the three types, the horizontal, vertical, and private, you also discuss that these three types are on a continuum in terms of how the power is divided between the different entities involved. So you refer to two additional sort of layers um, one side of the continuum is a shared horcrux, meaning that the entities have overlapping authority. And on the other side, we have external horcruxes, meaning the secondary entity holds all of the authority over the program. So with those sort of layers in mind over our three main types, horizontal, vertical, and private, I wanted to discuss with you the relative strengths and weaknesses of the various types. And if it makes sense, we can just take them one at a time and start perhaps with horizontal in terms of its relative strengths and weaknesses. Sure. So I think it might be helpful for, for folks to have a sense, a little bit of what are some examples of horizontal horcruxes. So one example would be the permitting program under the Clean Water Act, which gives the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers joint regulatory authority to define the, what the waters of the United States are for federal permitting requirements. Other programs that would constitute shared horizontal horcruxes would be the EPA and Department of Energy sharing responsibility to uh, administer the Energy Star program or shared responsibility um, between the EPA and the Department of Housing and Urban Development in addressing problems with respect to lead paint in uh, residential housing. An external horizontal horcrux might be something like what I've called in other research, the military environmental complex, the idea that Congress has directed the DOD to 
take into account climate change in its planning, uh, infrastructure, and other aspects of its decision-making. So the EPA plays no role, arguably. It is the programs related to climate change are housed entirely within the Department of Defense. So I think that the advantages of the horizontal horcrux are that they, because they're at the federal level, because there's the potential for sort of uniform national rules or standards, um, is that the horizontal horcrux is most likely able to kind of mirror a centralized program in terms of the power that it has to address interstate problems um, or problems of national scope. If a horcrux is embedded in the states, um, it is possible that the states that take the lead may not be able to address national problems or interstate spillovers effectively. So there is arguably greater power in the horizontal horcrux to address certain kinds of problems. Of course, as is potentially obvious by now, these horizontal horcruxes also have a weakness. And the weakness is, is that they lie within the control of the federal government, which is the entity that controls the EPA as well. And so efforts to deregulate traditional canonical environmental laws and regulations um, that are addressed and enforced by the EPA is likely, you know, whether a, a different agency is in charge, whether if it's the SEC, we have a unified federal government, um, and it is likely that the same deregulatory pressures are going to apply to the SEC and to the EPA. So they may still be under some uh, deregulatory pressure. The exception to this and the sort of nuance is that in order to have programs be adopted um, that span beyond the core environmental agency with a mission to protect the environment, but rather to be housed in, say, the Department of Defense, whose core mission is to protect national security, in order to have that program be adopted, there has to have been greater democratic deliberation whereby the goals of protecting the environment or reducing climate emissions or addressing climate resilience have been framed in terms of the agency's core mission of national security. And so what's very interesting is that even while there's a tremendous amount of deregulatory pressure on the EPA, on the climate and environment side, Congress has, in uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, kind of reaffirmed its commitment to the idea that climate change is a national security issue. So we'll see how much the Department of Defense programs on climate change are able to kind of withstand deregulatory efforts that are being pressed upon the EPA and its programs. Shall I continue with respect to vertical horcruxes? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so vertical horcruxes can also be shared or external. In the shared context, this might be something like a cooperative federalism approach where the federal government sets the standards and the states enforce it. It could be something like the Clean Water Act permit program where, as I mentioned, the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers have shared responsibility for ensuring that no discharges of pollutants uh, occur into waters of the United States without a federal permit. But there is also a program under Section 401 that requires um, the entity seeking a permit also to get approval from the relevant state, which has the authority to set water quality standards. So the state operates as a kind of backstop. A second example would be the California exception under the Clean Air Act, which allows California to seek a waiver from the EPA 
to set vehicle emission standards that are at least as protective of human health and the environment as the standards set by the federal government. And uh, the reason why these qualify is because they are similarly created by the federal government at the time that the, that the law is created. So as I mentioned before, it is likely to be the case that when you have deregulatory action at the federal government level, for example, the current efforts to roll back or the proposal to roll back emission standards for uh, light trucks um, and passenger cars, California is standing firm that it wishes to continue to enforce the higher standards that were put into place several years ago. So there is some resistance to deregulatory efforts by the central government. Of course, California's standard is not a national standard. And so while a dozen other states have adopted it, it uh, does not address the same scope as the original sort of core program under the Clean Air Act. Finally, with respect to private horcruxes, it's very important to acknowledge that only shared horcruxes exist in the private context. There's no such thing as an external uh, private horcrux. And the reason for this is because in order for something to count as a horcrux, it needs to be kind of created by the central regulator, created by the enacting coalition. The mere failure to regulate something by the federal government always allows for private action. Private action can always exceed regulatory standards. And so purely private action doesn't really fit within the the Horcrux framework. But there are examples of shared regulatory space where private actors have some authority to enforce the law. And the clearest example of this would be the citizen suit provisions that exist under a number of uh, every major federal environmental statute. So if the federal government chooses not to enforce the Clean Water Act, private entity like the Natural Resources Defense Council or Friends of the Earth or some other organization can sue as a private attorney general. And that is a way in which there has been some kind of decentralization of the enforcement mechanism of statutes. Well, I think you've already gotten into some of the advantages of horcruxes, so I'd like to continue down that road and highlight one that I found particularly interesting in in reading the article, and that is the potential for these horcruxes to foreground long-term public interest, as you put it. And because in the world of environmental policy, we often see the costs and benefits of our regulatory programs distributed in a long-term manner. So when we start to take short-term hits at these programs, we decrease their long-term efficacy and some of those long-term results, which are often achieved incrementally. So I thought that that was a particularly interesting um, advantage that you mentioned in your article. Were there any others that you wanted to mention that we hadn't gotten to yet? No, I mean, I think that the idea is that by using a horcrux, by using a kind of fragmentation or decentralization, what you're doing is you're making the program more sticky. You increase the costs of creating it at the outset, potentially, 
but you also increase the number of entities that potentially have an interest in the program continuing. And so in order to destroy the program or deregulate the program, more entities have to be involved. So um, while the federal government could change how it, for example, as it is attempting currently to do, change how it interprets the term waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act, it is much harder for the uh, deregulatory pressure to get at the California waiver under the Clean Air Act for vehicle emissions. This, um, by virtue of the fact that California has now its own kind of constituency of support for this program, a constituency of support that is supported by a dozen other states, the federal government cannot simply end or roll back uh, emissions limits related to greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles there is going to be a court that is going to get involved. It's not simply the snap of the fingers and the decision at the federal level to change the standards. So more entities with varied interests are involved, and this has the potential to make regulations more sticky. Right. And I like to think of the California waiver example. Perhaps there's a new term that needs to be invented for that one because it's so unique. It's kind of the expanded external vertical horcrux, um, if you will, because you do have all those other states that are involved. And I think as you also highlighted, when you have um, these horcruxes at play, whether they're vertical or horizontal, I think particularly what you're doing is you're bringing more voices to the table. And so you're getting more priorities and more viewpoints within a single program. And often, as you said, that can lead to sort of a different reason behind why perhaps some of these environmental objectives or outcomes need to be pursued. And in the case of DOD, as you sort of alluded to, they are perhaps pursuing certain environmental outcomes from a national security perspective, which is interesting. And it leads to this sort of stickier program where as you diversify the reasons behind achieving these environmental objectives, the more they sort of become embedded into uh, our democracy and our regulatory framework here. So I think it's really interesting to read about how you framed all of these things to see, start to see them at play. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you found it a useful analytical framework. Yeah. And so, I mean, we can't, we can't let you go without turning to some of the disadvantages uh, briefly, because there are some disadvantages. As I kind of stated earlier, the focus should be not necessarily on stickiness for stickiness's sake, um, but to try to make sure that these programs are running uh, their course in terms of achieving what they've set out to achieve. And so what might be some of the, the disadvantages of a Horcrux being established? Well, I think that there are two. There are the upfront disadvantages, and then there are the democratic accountability disadvantages. So upfront, it may be more costly and more challenging to create a program that contains a regulatory horcrux rather than simply to create a simple program that has one agency at the federal level that enforces and administers that program, right? Once you are 
negotiating with other agencies and trying to figure out how to deal with interagency coordination or coordination between the federal government and the states or bringing in private actors, that may make the regulatory program more complicated with many, many more moving parts. So there may be greater upfront costs to creating a program that contains the regulatory horcruxes. The second thing is, and this is really embedded within your question, is that durability for its own sake isn't a good thing. We have democratic elections for a reason. When we have democratic elections, presumably they reflect the current will of the people. And so the idea is that our policies ought to reflect some democratic accountability. And it shouldn't be the case that we have enacting coalitions from 30 years ago dictating policy necessarily for all time. So there is a a concern that if you make regulatory programs sticky or harder to dislodge, that this is interfering with democratic accountability. Now, on the flip side, I think it's actually really important to note that climate change is one of these problems that um, requires a long-term perspective and that requires not necessarily thinking purely in the short term. And uh, actually, your colleague at Harvard, Richard Lazarus, has argued very compellingly that in the climate change context, pre-commitment strategies that protect regulation from short-term reversals actually don't undermine democratic accountability because what they're doing is um, enhancing democratic accountability. If we don't ensure the durability of climate change regulation or legislation, then future generations have potentially no voice and no ability to engage in the democratic process at all. And I find that argument to be extremely compelling. So I think that it is important to acknowledge the democratic accountability concerns, but also to recognize that, um, first of all, if there's overwhelming cross-issue uh, cross agreement that the goals of a regulatory program have been met, then more power to the democratic electorate who can undo the program. But in the climate change context, it is important to take a long-term view, and so I think that the kind of regulatory stickiness may be more appropriate there. Well, I'm glad you raised uh, this issue about climate because it's one that continues to be a major problem here in the U.S. with the lack of leadership on a federal level on climate. And we see now increasing action at a state and local level to mitigate climate change and also adapt to the effects of climate change. Um, and that's part of my continuing portfolio of work here at the Environmental and Energy Law Program. And I know that you have a lot of other portfolios of work going at any given time. But I, I was wondering, since you wrote this piece about a year ago, whether this has been on your radar, whether you've had any additional insights into the things that you discussed about Horcruxes or the different contexts uh, that you used as examples over the last year since you wrote the piece? Well, I think what's been very interesting has been simply to watch how the environmental deregulatory efforts have been playing out at the federal level and to see how states have responded and to see where the stickiness lies in using this kind of analytical framework as a guidepost. And so I have been very curious to see efforts to de-emphasize climate resilience and how former military leaders recently published a report reiterating that climate change is a national security issue, 
how the state of California has um, vowed to fight efforts to revoke its waiver under the Clean Air Act with respect to vehicle emissions. And so I think I wouldn't say that I have new insights on this particular topic, but rather that I have found this to be a very useful analytical framework in which to watch the current deregulatory efforts unfold and to see which ones are easier, you know, which programs might be easier to change than others. Yeah, that that's sort of exactly what I've been doing ever since I read your article as well. Um, I know I've been following closely the efforts to revoke or preempt or withdraw however the agency ends up framing it in its final rule, California's waiver under the, the Clean Air Act for its vehicle tailpipe standards. So with your article in mind, I know that I will be watching the inevitable litigation closely because now I'm curious to see whether it will sort of influence the court, this this, reg, this unique regulatory structure that exists around California, um, as you have framed it, an external vertical horcrux, but really this sort of unique position that California occupies in being able to create its own standards, which stands in contrast to um, how other states operate, even under the same statute, the Clean Air Act, for example, with how they create their state implementation plans, where they have more of a shared vertical horcrux, and they're very much, they're subject to a little bit more oversight um, by EPA. And I wonder if that degree of independence that exists for California and the way that EPA's oversight is constrained in, in this area will sort of end up influencing the court in some way, even though the case will be about the EPA, um, the EPA's interpretation of the preemption clause in the in Energy Policy and Conservation Act or whatever avenue the agency ends up taking, whether that's also a reinterpretation of the Clean Air Act, we will see. So I know that I am using your article as sort of a, a framing and, and it's leading me to think a lot about how some of these things are going to play out both in terms of the rulemaking and the inevitable litigation. Well, thank you. I'm so delighted that you're finding the analytical framework useful. Well, Professor Light, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. I want to make sure that I give you a chance to raise anything else about this piece before we wrap things up here. No, I think you've, uh, your questions have been so comprehensive, and this has been a really wonderful conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I encourage everyone to read your article. It's only about 35 pages. So I, I found it to be accessible, but I am an administrative law nerd. And I guess I just think that everybody else will be just as enthused um, to dive right in. But it comes highly recommended. So thank you. 